Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with editor at Bioprocess International and managing editor at Xconomy, Dan Stanton. Hi, Dan, and welcome to the show. Hi, Roman, and thank you very much for inviting me to be on this. Absolute pleasure, and, and I have to say for our listeners to the show, no pressure, but Dan is probably one of my favorite people I've ever met through the pharma <laughs> biotech sector. <laughs> so it is extra lovely to have you on the show. So just to kick off, it'd be really useful for uh, the listener to kind of understand a bit about you and what you do at Bioprocess and Xconomy and and maybe just re- rewind the clock a little bit and tell us how you kind of ended up uh, kind of in the, in the pharma sector as well. Well, I guess there's a long story and a short story, but I'll, I'll try and keep it closer to the short story just for um, your <laughs> listeners' sake. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a journalist, uh, a B2B journalist focused on the biopharma um, industry. I've been um, writing about the sector for about 10 years in uh, at various publications. And then, um, well, it's, it's about two, two and a half years ago now, um, I moved over to uh, my present company, Bioprocess International, to set up a um, publication called Bioprocess Insider that sits within the Bioprocess International universe that brings um, free, uh, unbiased news about the bioprocessing and the biomanufacturing industry, um, well, to the industry. And then from there, um, uh, I've also um, moved on to uh, uh, looking at Xconomy, which focuses on the uh, the biotech space and startups and the investment side of things. So I'm really, uh, I've got a kind of um, a finger on the pulse across the biopharma spectrum um, in various ways from an editorial perspective, or at least I'd like to think I do. <laughs> and my research tells me that you were a teacher in China. Is that true? <laughs> Oh, a long, long time ago. And, and, you know, we're not talking recent here because that could compromise me in many different ways. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, you know, for years um, I was, a, um, a, I guess you'd call an, an informal journalist, essentially trying to peddle my wares wherever I could. Um, uh, I love writing, always have done, love researching and um, also love traveling. So at some point in my um, early 20s, I ran away from the UK where I'm from, uh, went traveling, ended up in China teaching English. Um, and yeah, and uh, um, that was obviously before um, uh, the career fell um, my way and the family fell my way. And, you know, it was a misspent time. <laughs> and life now has you living in the south of France, which I'm sure me and most people listening to this episode will be very jealous of. So how is life living in the south of France? Well, right now it's a bit strange because we're all under lockdown um, because, of, <laughs> because of the good old um, novel coronavirus. But um, generally it's, well, it, it's it's sunshine and wine. So I really have nothing to complain about. Um <laughs> Yeah, you seem to complain quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's British in me, you see. You, you, can, you, you, you can take the, uh, the the Brit out of England, but um, you can't change his ways. So you, you've had quite an interesting um, kind of career development to the kind of um, the positions that you hold now. And particularly because, I mean, I, I think we originally met when you were at uh, Biopharma as a reporter. And what what is it? 
kind of skill wise that that you've got or that you, that's managed to kind of help you carve this career is it is it as simple as your writing ability is it as simple as an ability to spot a story or an angle um what, what is it that's kind of carved that career path for you now that's a great question um i you know a lot of people can write and a lot of people can write a lot better than 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 me but um I, I think to be um, a good journalist, you need to well, you need to understand your readership. You need to understand who you're writing for, and you also have to be able to um, uh, pull the right angle out. So it's the you know, twenty publications will have the same story from a press release or from a uh, um, a conference call. But um, being able to decipher what is relevant to your audience and what is actually of interest, I think, makes makes one stand out from the crowd. And um, without sounding big-headed, I, I think I have that knack. Uh, I, I also kind of have fallen into a um, bit of a niche um, area of the market because mm-hmm. you know, um, pharmaceutical, um, the pharmaceutical industry is it's pretty broad in itself. But to be a journalist in there is is, is fairly widespread from a um, you know a pharmaceutical um, uh, reporter on the Financial Times or some of the mainstream um, publications to kind of the the, the trade press, the the stats, the um, economies, the um, um, the biopharma reporters, the bio um, bioprocess internationals, and every one of those publications has to have its angle. And I yeah I I, I think that knowing your audience, knowing who you're writing for and being able to um, to pick that angle out of the story is mm-hmm. really critical to um, to being relevant and standing out from the crowd. Yeah, I love that. Really, really interesting insight. And one thing that you mentioned, which I think is quite, uh, quite fascinating, is just the, you said a few of the kind of industry titles uh, that are the kind of go-to for many people in, in the sector. Um, and obviously the like media landscape has changed hugely over the last kind of 30 years in terms of kind of going from traditional publications to more online news. Um, and at the time of recording, when kind of the obviously coronavirus is, is spreading across the world, what... I suppose, what role do you see in, in your publications and, and actually the industry publications kind of during this time? Do you think actually they have a probably a greater role now than ever to kind of get that news to people and kind of updates, particularly on obviously potential vaccines for, for COVID? How has that changed in the current climate? Um, another great question. I think maybe you should be the journalist here. Um <laughs> I, 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 I spent 20 years working with journalists, so I've, I've learned, I've, I've picked up some skills along the way. Um, strangely, and you know, these are only my views, um, I, I'm kind of inundated with potential stories focused on COVID-19. Every company that is in this sector um, is looking to develop a test or use their technology to help advance medicines or therapies or vaccines or whatever it is to help solve COVID-19. It really is the the, the only story at the moment. Um, that said, it's not just the only story within the trade press. It's the only story in the mainstream press. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's a hell of a lot of stuff going on in the world, but um, the focus is probably rightly so. On coronavirus, so um, I, I kind of think the trade press is 
some ways getting slightly swept under the carpet um, as their patch, their um, beat, is kind of being trampled on by mainstream interest. The mainstream, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think, you know, at the... Um, sorry to cut you off, but um, I, I think when we come out of this, um, there'll be more of an interest from the layman on... Um, on all things biopharma, um, and I think yeah. the, the the mainstream media will go back to being the mainstream media, and um, and the trade press will be able to carry on going into the the the, um, the, the areas and sexes that they they generally cover. And I, I guess this also yeah. goes back to my previous answer as well, which is um, uh, having that angle and being able to um, differentiate yourself from the crowd, because the stuff I would write on coronavirus uh, for Bioprocess Insider would be for that biomanufacturing audience. So it would be um, the technologies or the um, uh, the, the deal making of um, and the capacities um, for producing the um, therapeutic antibodies or for producing the vaccines. Whereas the, um, the person reading, um, I don't know, the Daily Mail say, will just want to know if there's a cure coming along soon. Yeah, it's, it's interesting actually. I mean, I never really thought of it like that, but I do think what you said is rings true is that I think they'll they'll end up being a a greater not just a spotlight but a greater interest in the pharma and biotech space uh, particularly the supply chain um, and also I, I mean you know if you if you take your mind ahead a year from now and say you know one of these vaccines that are you know in early phase trials actually succeeds it could be a really interesting moment for the pharmaceutical and biotech sector to be seen as a, I don't want to say a savior in the kind of, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad things that go on in the sector as well, but I do think there's a potential opportunity that not only will there be a greater interest in the sector, but potentially a greater sense of respect and appreciation if the sector can manage to produce a product that ultimately saves lives across the world, probably billions of lives, you know, long-term. And I think that's a, it's a really interesting opportunity for the sector to almost work on its own <laughs> reputation in PR. Um, so yeah, it's very, very interesting thoughts. And, and so you, you were talking about kind of obviously your kind of career and the different roles that you've done. And if you could kind of go back to your 25 year old self, what advice would you give your 25 year old self? Apart from never try teaching English in China. <laughs> um, I I think um, you know back then I I was happy happily scribbling away, um, getting whatever uh, vague journalistic gig I could get. Um, but really, I'd say you know don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. And I don't just mean that from a journalistic point of view, um, but I think it really helps in, in from an editorial point standpoint because there's, you know, I think people are very scared to ask questions about things that they don't understand, especially in the um, the biopharma space because I don't have a science degree, um, I have a, a history degree, um, and getting my head round the science um, back in the day and even now, it's uh, it's. It's a it's a completely different part of my brain that doesn't quite work as well as the um, the sort of humanity side of my brain. But um, yeah. um, the simplest thing is for me to say, please explain, or I don't understand. Could you explain that again? And I think there's um, I think a lot of people have issues with 
admitting that they don't understand something or um mm -hmm. or or something that someone is talking about quite fluently just goes straight over their head but really um you know it's 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 if if you get past that so if you can get um over that hurdle then you can ask anything and you can learn and then you can relate it very easily to um to to whatever readership you're working for or writing for sorry Quit. Great, great insight, good advice there. Um, and if if we were kind of shift gears slightly, and I think you, um, you're at the role that you play in kind of looking at the sector and in writing about the sector. Are there any kind of major trends and changes or shifts that you're seeing kind of going on, kind of across the board in the outsourcing space, whether that be coronavirus related or not? It'd just be interesting to kind of get your thoughts on what what you're seeing from the market. Well, I, I, from the coronavirus point of view, I think it's slightly too early to um, say what's going to happen. And, um, you know, it's, it's at the time of recording here. I don't know when this is going out. Um, we've just had the first sort of um, um, financial Q1 reports mm -hmm. from various companies. And it seems that within the, the, the outsourcing area that I covered, so the, um, the, the CMOs, the CDMOs and the um, uh, bioprocess vendors, it seems to be not just business as usual, but they are in high demand. So um, a mm -hmm. couple of companies have reported exceptionally high first quarters, which um, has bucked the trend of pretty much every industry, other industry in the world right now, because yeah. these therapies and vaccines are in development. People need this equipment. People need people to manufacture um, these uh, antibodies or small molecules or whatever they are. Um, so demand is seems to be at the moment high off the back of COVID-19. But I mean, mm. yeah, as I said, it's, it's slightly too early to see how that's going to pan out. Um, you know, who even knows if, uh, if, if the world's going to be here in a year's time. But, um, <laughs> but I, I think before this came along, there's, um, there is a couple of um, things that I've been seeing on the, uh, well, the bioprocess, biopharma um, outsourcing trend. Um, the CMO space, um, when I first sort of reported it, reported about uh, on it about a decade ago, um, you know, it was very diverse. It was um, uh, very. There were a lot of companies that seemed to manufacture and not do very much else. And mm -hmm. over the course of ten years, the phrase CMO has kind of disappeared and been replaced by CDMO with that development sneaking in um, because. To survive, it feels like the CMOs have had to up their game and offer more end-to-end -end offerings um, in the whole development space as well as the manufacturing space. And, and just a little caveat, I don't really cover the fine chemicals or the small molecule API space, so this might very, be very different. But on the sort of bio, um, the, the biologic space and the cell and gene therapy space with all this um new um next generate with these next generation products coming through i think they've had to grow and to increase their offering by investing or buying technologies to help produce these so they've really gone on leaps and bounds from just being a sort of straightforward um mm -hmm. service provider and they've really had to invest in those technologies um, in order to expand and kind of provide that full service for these um, uh, um, 
these advanced therapies and these next generation biologics. Yeah. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. So one thing you mentioned there, Dan, was around kind of cell and gene therapy and kind of advanced uh, medicines. And I think prior to the COVID uh, issue we have going on at the minute, I think that was very much seen as the kind of hot topic uh, in this sector and also very um, divisive sector in terms of, or divisive subject, both in terms of um, the treatments and the, the, the cures, which are obviously fantastic at a patient level, but the flip side being how expensive they are, and particularly here in, in North America. So just interested on your views on the kind of development of these kind of gene and cell therapies, uh, and where do you see them going in the future? Well, it's funny because, um, you know, up to a couple of months ago, cell and gene therapies was was kind of the bulk of what I was writing because there was so much um, momentum in the cell and gene therapy space, um, both in the uh, sort of the, the early clinical phase and then pushing towards commercialization. And yeah, I mean, you're right. The price is a, a huge uh, talking point, um, hot potato, whatever you want to call it at the moment, because these are so expensive to um, produce, especially um, the uh, autologous products, which we've already seen go to commercialization. Um, Novartis, Kimraya, uh, Gilead mm-hmm. Jescarta, for example, they are um, they're made by using an individual patient's um, uh, cells, which are taken and re-engineered, then put back into the patient. So that is, you know, a very uh, very personalised um, um, medicine in its in its well, personalised medicine in its right, rightful sense. Um, and yeah. to make that, it's a very very expensive process, and you know, the price reflects that somewhat. And um, there is yeah. some thought that the next generation of um, of, of cell and gene therapies coming through are going to be um, allogeneic. They're going to be these off the shelf, which should reduce the price because they can then be manufactured to manufactured to scale, um, similarly to um, how you know monoclonal antibodies have been um, uh, um, produced and the price has yeah. dropped for them considerably, but. You know, at the moment, we're we're still a, f- a fair way from um, um, having uh, the number of cell and gene therapies uh, on the market that um, having yeah having um, um, having the prices drop on these products and having yeah. um, um, the number of therapies on the market. Um, I think you know if you listen to what the industry is saying about these products, they and you know you can take this with a grain of salt but they, they are kind of saying these products are cheap compared to um the uh, uh, using a biologic or a, even a small molecule drug for a chronic condition because these are a one-off um yeah. cure for a disease so if a if, if a patient or a payer um a, a payer is paying um you know 1.5 million that sounds like a hell of a lot of money but yeah compared to how many thousands over however many years um and then the strain on the healthcare system as well um, that goes with yeah. that. They will argue that it's not actually as expensive as um, it sounds. And everyone loves a headline yeah. figure. And 
one point however much million for Dolgensma, for example, is really yeah. going to draw attention not just from the trade press but from the mainstream press as well. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating point that I have to say, and, you know, particularly for yourself living in in France and obviously both of us have lived in the UK where we've benefited from having the NHS. I mean. The healthcare system in in the US is so vastly different, and you know, I, I it just kind of give you some insight into how expensive healthcare can be here. I mean, I I hurt my knee a few months ago and got ended up having an MRI scan, and the bill came through yesterday um, for just telling me how much it was and what the insurance covered, um, and it was four thousand dollars for an MR for a twenty minute MRI scan, mm. and I was absolutely astounded. And you know, my contribution was a couple of hundred bucks or something like that. But it does really make you think that, you know, if you have, say, a cancer patient that requires, say, three years of treatment, the cost of that to uh, the healthcare system in terms of time and resource, but also the physical cost in insurance companies and patients, in the, in, particularly in North America, is on the US, is so, so high. So I do, I, it's a really interesting point you, you bring up around, you know, a one off payment of being 300000 pound of five hundred thousand dollars whatever it is seems a lot is a one ticket one time purchase but it's interesting that actually is a longer run in the longer run it actually could be it could be a more yeah. cost effective yeah a cost effective way and uh no it's a really fascinating subject and i think it's one that will really continue to develop and i think we hope we all hope that the cost of those drugs will come down in the future so um, there's a more efficient way of manufacturing them and, and getting them into patients. Uh, I, I do want to j- jump in very quickly, if you don't mind, because um, you mentioned an MRI scan on your knee costing however many thousands of dollars. And I had a very similar, well, I had an MRI scan on my knee in France a couple of years ago, and I think it came to about 50, 60 euros. <laughs> Um, God, I'm living. In, I'm living in the wrong country. You've got uh, son, you've got sun. You have sun and wine and, and cheap MRIs. Percent of that was paid back to me by the states as well. So unbelievable, unbelievable. All right, let's move swiftly on. So we've got last couple of questions. Um, one thing I was going to ask you about, actually, which you you talked about, it's it's more specific to your profession and indeed and with the sector and I was going to ask you around you know if, if there was one change that you could see in the sector what what would it be but more specifically you often deal with um, obviously different companies all over the world from a communications perspective in terms of uh, whether it's you know they're putting out an announcement or something like that what what tips or advice have you got for companies in terms of I suppose dealing with the media and, and utilizing the media to to get their message out there because I know a lot of companies out there are very very media shy, and so it'll be interesting to kind of get your take on what they can do to kind of uh, I suppose better build a relationship with with media contacts like yourself. I think the first thing is for these companies to actually have um, a media strategy, and whether mm-hmm. that's in house or out house, um, you know, or using a, a, um, a third party communication firm. That's up to them, but I've come across so many companies that um, have either been impossible to, um, to to get responses from or to um, get them to account. Um, you know, they, they just they don't have someone in house. They don't have a, a third party communications team, and trying to get um, 
answers is a nightmare. And many times you phone a company up and um, <laughs> I'll get put through, depending on the size of the company, to quite a high level um, executive who is just as useless. And they will either say nothing because <laughs> they don't know what to say, or they'll say something that is um, uh, completely... Um, outrageous and it's great for me because um <laughs> i can then write what they've said but then it will hit a shareholder it will hit the company and and really it's because the company has no uh understanding of dealing with the press um <clears throat> maybe they're just not prepared to speak to the press or um they just they as i said they haven't got a strategy in place but i think it's it's really crucial for firms to have a strategy and to have an outreach as well um yeah there's a company That's right now that I'm not going to um, mention who's pretty big and uh, they they have no one who is available for comment and throughout their various phone lines they just you get sent back from one 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 reception desk to another because they don't really know um, how to deal with the media and it's a shame because um, they've got an undisclosed story that would be of great interest not just to my readers but for them as well and it's it's you know a lot of times people think journalists are always looking for the dirt and we love a bit of dirt it's true but um (laughs) especially you know in the trade press really we just want to know what's going on and um write a story up and find out the the details and all this exposure is going to be good for the company in one way or the other and um, not having a team on board or any strategy in place is is completely detrimental yeah i think you're absolutely right there i think there's a common misconception amongst say business professionals in the sector that associate you know tabloid media journalists with trade media journalists as the same breed and, and, it, and certainly in my experience they're they're two very different animals and i think that education piece and just being a little bit more proactive with media strategy. I mean, I obviously have a communications background and I always remember one of the first lectures I ever had, which was, it was all around, you know, stakeholders that, uh, you know, that you think about within a business setting. And the idea was that there are three stakeholders that can make or break a business, one being customers, one being employees and one being the media. And I think actually that's a really fundamental way of looking at it that it just shows you in the same way that you would look after your customers and that you would look after your employees, that you should have a strategy to actually deal with, whether it be local or regional or trade or national media to, to actually um, have a communication and a relationship with kind of key key journalists like yourself. So very interesting well, insights there. And then, sorry, go on. Uh, no, I just think on the reverse side as well, I think um, – you know, journalists do have a responsibility to um, uh, obviously uh, re- report um, and to, faint, to to create these uh, contacts with um, companies and actually be able to report on them because, you know, anyone can go online now and write something off in a blog piece. and um, yeah. But to actually uh, um, have a sort of successful relationship between um, a company and um, the trade press, there's, there's got to be some sort of symbiotic relationship. And um yeah as you said we're not tabloid um mm-hmm. d- despite some of my headlines but um <laughs> <laughs> but we're 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 also you know we have to keep that we have to remain unbiased so it's 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 there's a line to kind of um hold on i've got kids shouting in the background 
That's all right. That's all that that could be part of the recording because that's the reality that we're all we're all living in <laughs> living it, Dan. Don't worry about it. Okay. Definitely uh, not gonna cut that out. That's that's part of the authenticity of, of the life we are living at. What the if what if I shout down and swear at them? <laughs> if it's in French, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean there's a there's definitely a um a, a line but um and there's a one side of it is, is PR and the other side is uh, trade press. And, um, you know, there's that line is something that um, I would never like to step over, but it's it's definitely yeah. a, a much closer um, relationship, I think, than a, um, uh, the mainstream press. And that, that, that goes back to my initial point about the audience and specifically mm-hmm. knowing who the audience is and what they want and what they want to know. Absolutely. Okay, final couple of questions for you, Dan, and I'll, I'll let you go. So... Um, how would your best friend describe you in three words? Oh my god! Okay, um, you put me on the spot here, but um, probably cynical, but in a positive sense. Um, it's a good word considering you're a journalist. It's a great word considering I'm a journalist, but the fact that um, <laughs> the rest of my vocabulary has dried up very quickly is not a great <laughs> reflection of my journalism. Um, I I, oh, I, so I I can't do this. You, you, I, you can come no, on. I, I, I... Well, I mean, I, I I know you pretty well. Okay, how would I, you describe me in three words? <laughs> I'd say definitely cynical. Um, I think you're very energetic. Okay. And I actually think you're very generous as well. That's. I think uh, you have. Very, that's that's how I would describe you in the. You know, in the many times that we've met over the years, I think that's how I would probably probably sum you up. Oh, I'd probably have to go modest then, because <laughs> I am I'm I'm you, you can't see me because this is being done over um, uh, over uh, um, the internet. But I am blushing right now. So, <laughs> uh, right. Final question is just just more. Is there any uh, any kind of comments or requests or anything that you'd like to say to the audience before we we wrap up? Um, no, I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd like to plug my publications. So Bioprocess Insider, it's a, um, a publication focused on the biomanufacturing, bioprocessing uh, industries. Uh, it's it's news, it's opinions, it's features, and it's all um, it's all free. So if you go to um, bioprocessinsider.com, uh, you can read it, you can sign up to our free newsletters, and it's also part of the uh, Bioprocess International Universe, and there's a whole wealth of information there about uh, bioprocessing from the more scientific and technical side of things. And then I guess, um, yeah, I I better push my other publication as well, Exconomy. As I said at the beginning, it's more focused on the biotech space, the the financials, um, the the science, the startups, um, uh, the, the bench capitalists. And I've got a couple of great writers on that team who um, produce daily news. Once again, it's all free, delivered to your inbox. Sign up to the emails, um, www.exconomy.com. Great stuff. And you'll be pleased to know I'm a subscriber to both of your publications. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) All right, Dan, thank you so much for your time and input. uh, I'm sure the listeners will take uh, a lot of great advice um, uh, from from what you've provided today. Thanks so much. Uh, Thank you. And to the listener, thanks for listening as always. And you will hear from me very soon. Take care. Hi, 
again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.